Let's whiz over to the UK for our regular chat with Ian Dunt. Ian, of course, is columnist with the Eye newspaper and he's also our royal watcher, as will emerge in just a moment. Ian, before we uh, get on to serious matters like the Rwandan solution, as our royal watcher, would you tell me what went on with uh, between Joe and Charles? Well, they look like they get on better than uh, the American president does with Rishi Sunak, the prime minister. Um, so it was all smiles yesterday as they sort of spoke about, you know, their long support for environmental matters. This is an attempt to sort of placate some of the British concerns around the extent of Joe Biden's antipathy towards Britain, which he hasn't really tried to conceal in any meaningful way, nor should he. So they sort of came out of their room after they had a conversation. They had to listen to Grant Shapps, a senior conservative politician who sort of talked interminably towards them for a very long time, during which uh, King Charles had his rather typical expression, which is the one of my God, how long is this dreadful little man going to keep on talking before I can leave? <laughs> and that was about the full extent of, of the royal visit. OK. Now, the uh, Court of Appeals has fired a shot across the bow of what passes for refugee policy. Yeah, exactly. Or rather, anti-refugee policy. So the Court of Appeal has ruled the Rwanda system is not legal. It wasn't the concept of it. It was essentially a verdict on Rwanda's asylum system, whether it was good enough that you could actually have a sort of credible process for an asylum claim there, whether there was a risk that people's, the uh, asylum seekers' right not to be tortured or subject to inhuman treatment would be challenged, and whether there was a risk that they might be sent home to their home countries, potentially to their deaths. And they found that that risk did exist, and that therefore the government's tr attempt to try and send asylum seekers to Rwanda was unlawful. Now that decision now goes to the Supreme Court. We're expecting that probably September, October time, and that really is the final arbiter. Like That's the moment that we really find out whether there's any kind of legal chance for this policy. As it is, I mean, the government's refugee policy is just a complete shambles. I mean, right now, through Parliament, they have the illegal migration bill that's going through. Now, what that piece of legislation says is, we're just not going to process any claims. Like, we're essentially giving up on the idea that we would allow asylum seekers into the country. We're not going to process. We're gonna, people will come, we will lock them up, and then we're going to send them to one of three places. Rwanda or a European country they pass through on the way here, or their country of origin. Now, they can't send them to Rwanda because it's unlawful. They, they can't send them to a European country they pass through because we have no agreements with the Europeans since Brexit. And we can't send them back to their country of origin because it goes against the Refugee Convention, which the government has said it will not break. So at the moment, their policy is essentially to put a huge amount of people in camps without any actual practical way of sending them to any other country. I have, I, this is out of sequence, but I was deeply moved by that story of painting over a kid's, kid's mural in one of the detention centres. Yeah, I, can't, I mean, that just felt to me, you know, like one of these moments where morally, sort of like on a human level and on a national level, you just feel that something truly profound is happening, like something really quite bleak the kind of thing that you can't necessarily come back from. So this is a Home Office Minister, Robert Jenrick. He's a dreadful human being at the very best of times, and this is not the best of times. And he visited one of these uh, detention centres for, for solitary asylum-seeking children. These are children, they don't have family, they don't have friends, there's no one looking after them, they're completely on their own, they're under the age of 18, they're mostly rescued from these small boats. They're put there, and they're clearly going to be terrified. Um, 
And what he found during that visit, I mean, that, that infrastructure was not what horrified him. The fact that we shouldn't be detaining children at all, let alone children on their own, that didn't horrify him at all. What horrified him was that there was a mural with Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse on it, just a small attempt, like at least something, to try to communicate to the children that they'll be safe here and that they'll be treated, you know, like kids. And he ordered that that was painted over. And that just seems, it's just this moment of like, how do you, how do you even sleep at night? Like, what is it that you're looking at when you look in the mirror that you've reached this point in your life where that is the thing that you're demanding? In fact, it's so morally corrosive. It's so morally grotesque that even Nigel Farage, you know, the man who's done more than most to try and turn people against refugees, even he was like, well, hang on a minute. This sort of feels like it's gone a bit too far now. This seems kind of pernicious. So, yeah, it was, it was I think it's, it seems small. Obviously, it's not as big a story as, you know, boats sinking in the ocean, but... But actually, on a moral level, it feels like something really profound there is being revealed about where Britain is at at the moment. Going back to the Court of Appeals, what does the uh, saintly Suella Braverman have to say about the, uh, the finding, the decision? You know, the, the classic attack on, on the courts. I mean, look, the, the, this is going to go through, I mean, when you think about it, coming into September, October, when you think about the current uh, opposition that she's facing in the House of Lords, she likes this stuff. You know, for her, electorally, they enjoy that narrative. They know that they're going to have problems in the courts. They know that they'll be opposed by the House of Lords. And that's sort of okay for them because they can just say, look, these sort of liberal metropolitan elitists in the courts and in Parliament who are trying to stop us doing what the great British public absolutely don't. You actually look at the polling on this stuff. The great British public does not actually support the policy. Most of the time, the, the British public, when you look at the polling, they want, they want a fairly tough immigration policy, but they want an immigration policy. They want you to process the claims. It's simply not true that they want it all just brushed off somewhere and chucked into some other country for them to deal with. So the, the argument that she makes is not a sound one. It's not a true one. But nevertheless, for that core demographic that they're targeting, it doesn't have to be the majority of people, just the kind of people who might vote conservative. She actually thinks that the battle with the court is probably quite good optics. Going back to kids... There's been uh, some sort of uh, change in policy regarding the use of force against children. Tell us about that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that sort of speaks, I guess, to, you know, that image, that Mickey Mouse image was sort of communicated to kids. Look, you're safe here. We're not going to harm you. And possibly one of the reasons that Generate wanted to get rid of that is because that is no longer the case. There is a change of policy. We found it in documents relating to the illegal migration bill that were published rather surreptitiously and rather quietly. And what they said was that, you know, until now we've had a policy that there'll be no use of force against under-18s unless it's for their own safety, unless it's to prevent harm to themselves or others. Now, you see, there'll be an assumption of no use of force unless it's reasonably necessary in order to ensure the deportation or the removal of the individual. In other words... You know, we're, we're prepared to countenance violence against children, against asylum seeker children. So you say this stuff. I mean, it, it is hard to keep it political. You do sort of end up going to this space of what is happening to people's souls. I mean, what is going on even with the civil servant tasked with writing this stuff? Imagine you've gotten to the point in your life where you're having to write in this very bureaucratic language as if you're simply sort of, uh, you know, evaluating transport options for an infrastructure project where really what you're talking about is the use of violence against children. And that at the moment is where British policy is going to go. One of the things you have that we don't is PM. PMQ, Prime Minister's Question Time, and Rishi Sunak's been having a spot of bother. 
Yeah, so th this is the weekly sort of half-hour session where the leader of the opposition gets to ask questions of the Prime Minister and so do other MPs. It's kind of not really worth very much. It's quite theatrical, but occasionally you get flashes of meaning with it. And actually it has a secondary useful effect because it forces the Prime Minister to spend a bit of time each week trying to see if there's any problems in any other departments across the system that could get raised against them. So it's actually quite good primarily for information flow within government rather than opposition. Nevertheless, it's a big theatrical moment. People pay attention to it who would ignore politics the rest of the time. So there's a danger there for the Prime Minister. And so Rishi Sunak's response is just just to try and avoid them. At the moment, he has the worst attendance record of any prime minister since the days of the early 90s. So it's, it's not mandated, it's not compulsory. He doesn't have to do it. Well, it, it is mandated, but you can always find excuses. You know, you've got a foreign trip, you've got a visit here, and, and in those cases, what you do is you get your deputy and they stand in for you, and then the deputy on the other side would stand in. In this case, Angela Rayner would be standing in for Keir Starmer on the Labour side. Uh, and in, uh, he's done that 19% of the time in, you know, much less than a year that he's been in power. I mean, to give you some impression, Boris Johnson, who was dreadful in all manner of ways, only, only missed 6% of them. Tony Blair, who was in power for, you know, 10 years, only missed 5% of them. So he really seems to be running scared. He's not just running scared from PMQs. He seems to be running scared when you start looking at commons debates that are in any way difficult for him or that require him to show a moral backbone, particularly as regards his own backbenchers. He is reliably absent. So when there was a debate on Robert Patterson, I beg your pardon, Robert Patterson, um, on Owen Patterson, who was a Tory, I'm, I'm getting my, my movie stars and my politicians mixed up, which people very rarely do, uh, who was an MP who was found guilty by the Privileges Committee of using commercial um, interests in order to lobby in his political capacity he was absent for that debate. When it came to the Privileges Committee finding to suspend Boris Johnson, he was absent from that debate. When it came yesterday for another Privileges Committee on the Tory MPs who had attacked the committee and tried to reduce its standing, he was absent for those debates. The thing that lines this all up is that it's always where it's difficult for him internally in the Conservative Party, and yet this was the man that when he entered number 10 said... I'm going to stand up for values. I'm not going to be like Boris Johnson. This will be the cleanest, transparent administration. It's certainly not the way that it looks when you look at his attendance in the Commons. Let's end with uh, some current embarrassments around the BBC, if you please. Yeah, just a real mess going on there at the moment. So The Sun reported on Saturday that a BBC presenter had been uh, offering financial payments to a 17-year-old for pictures of them in a state of undress. Uh, we don't know who the presenter is. There's been the most enormous kerfuffle over this. I mean, it's front page news in I think every single newspaper yesterday and most of them today. Uh, and yet... Uh, Suddenly, this new development where yesterday the child's lawyer, uh, the young man's lawyer, says, well, this is all rubbish. And actually, this is all coming from the mother, from which he seems to be estranged, and not from, from the child himself. And we don't think there's any story here. We've tried to correct it with the son. They're not having it. So at the moment, what you've got is a story where lots of the details are absent. But the son from that classic, you know, this is the Murdoch and son, always attacking the BBC, always trying to take it down and to smear it morally, is launching like a pure attack dog over it. And you sort of get to the heart of it and think, you know, that there is no real concern for the people involved in this story. We don't know the details clearly, but already it's been absorbed into that classic Murdoch versus BBC war. Ian, thanks for that. Good to talk to you again. And Ian will be with us in a fortnight the voice of Ian Dunt. ABC Listen. 
podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 